Picture the scene. It's 7pm on Monday, the 5th of November, 2001 in the UK. The nights have long since drawn in, so it's dark and the air is crisp and cold, slightly damp from the previous downfalls of rain, but now it's dry. Despite the weather and uninviting darkness, unlike most British November nights, this one is filled with joy and laughter. With most people home from work, up and down the British Isles, bonfires are well underway in countless back gardens and communal areas, and the dark clear night sky is punctured and interspersed with the bright colours and loud bangs of fireworks going off to celebrate Guy Fawkes or bonfire night. It's a night most people look forward to and remember. Not because they want to remember and celebrate a foiled attempt to destroy the Houses of Parliament, but more because it's a time that they get to spend with their families and friends. Families get to create memories in their children's minds, and couples young and old have an excuse to hold each other close in a cold night and bond that little bit more. And hey, if you're single, it's an excuse to eat and drink and be merry, and who doesn't need that from time to time? So welcome to the very first episode, or the very first re-recording of the episode of Picture the Scene. My name's Andrew. And my name's Rachel. And a year ago today, this was a brand new true crime podcast that aimed to entertain and inform you about all things related to true crime. And I truly hope that we, we do do that. Now, if you're listening to this, I did put, I'm going to read this verbatim on my original script. So if you're listening to this, I put that I'm pretty amazed because I'm not sure how you found us. <laughs> but lots of people have found us since then, Rachel. I asked people to go and check out the Picture the Scene pod, Facebook page. And I called it Picture the Scene Podcast. So if you want to, please check us out on Facebook. And I, I did create, do you remember I created a Facebook group, Rachel? Yep. And then I lost it. I don't know. It's gone into the Facebook darkness somewhere. So yeah. I'm the only, I'm the only member in the Facebook group group. But I can't oh. even I can't even find it myself. So don't join that if you find it. Or if you do find it, tell me where it is. <laughs> Additionally, if you're a user on Twitter or Instagram, give us a follow. We can be found on both with the moniker. I never use the word moniker either, do I now? I, I love. I just love the fact that you said if you're a user on Twitter or Instagram, like I don't know, user. That, that's me showing my age. Yeah. Yeah. Fair yeah. enough. With the Monica Scene Pod, and that's all on where that's S E E N E P O D, and it's our birthday, and and uh, Rachel's already abusing me, but and I'll put all of this in the episode description. So Rachel, this is a re-recording. You wasn't here for the very first one, which is why I deleted it. But we are now re-recording it, so. I'm glad that you you're here to complete the full set, and you're here for as one of our uh, pods that we listen to say you're here for a long time, not just a good time. Absolutely, and can I just say I remember exactly where I was when I sat down and listened to your very first pod. Yeah, so I can remember exactly where I was when I was listening to this very first episode. So uh, I can literally picture the scene. Of, yeah, where I was sat listening, and I hate the overuse of the word literally, so I'm sorry to our listeners hearing me say that just now twice. I literally hate the overuse of the word literally as well. It's why so, we've stayed. It's why we've stayed such good podcast host friends. Yes, we, <laughs> we, joined. we hate things equally. I so, would say no. I would. I would definitely say that we balance each other out more often than not. I really like something, and you really dislike it. Is that true? Maybe. I would say so, yeah. Maybe. You know what I used to get when I was younger? People always used to say to me that I was really tight. And I guess for the non-English people listening to this, or British people, tight means doesn't spend much, not any other form of the word. (laughs) That's it, yeah. 
and I never was. I used to always be very generous, and it used to really irritate me. So I guess it, am I like really negative then? I always hate what what were people like. No, but I would say that I'm probably overly enthusiastic about really random things. Um, so instead of putting a negative slant on me saying you're negative, it's probably more um, me being yeah over, overly enthusiastic about things I really shouldn't be. And there you go, listeners. Welcome to the very first ever therapy episode of Picture the Scene <laughs> podcast. And it's where we, we, we help each other with uh, issues that we have. So, Rachel, yeah. are you ready for some true crime? I am. Let's just get into it. Some year old true crime, yes. Let's do this. So, on this fateful night in 2001, Michaela Haig was a 25-year-old woman with a loving partner and a 5-year-old son. Just like many young couples with a small child, the evening for Michaela had started just like the evening had started for many other young families. She had enjoyed some fireworks with her partner and son in their home, which was in the Pittsmore area of Sheffield, which is a city in the north of England, my home city, and it's in Yorkshire to be exact. That's why I chose this case, Rachel. Oh, this case lovely. from my home city, yes. And I put here, coincidentally, I'm from Sheffield. And actually, I put, at one point in my past, I had lived in Pittsmore. So I know the area quite well. It's not as nice an area. Was it around, was it around the time of the crime? 2000, no, 2001. I was 21. I grew. I lived there for um, maybe a year or so, year and a half, when I was pre-pubescent. I don't remember the age, but it's convenient. young, yes. It wasn't me, I swear. Yeah, and so Pittsburgh, it has a reputation for being one of the rougher areas of Sheffield. And gang crime is high and frequent, but... Speaking from personal experience, like many areas, it has plenty of people who are good, decent people, and they're just trying to do the best with what they have in life. So the night, Rachel, it started well for Michaela. She had enjoyed some quality time for her family, but then she had to go to work. Now, Michaela, like many other women and men around the UK and worldwide, she was a sex worker, and it had been widely reported that Michaela had turned to sex work due to drug abuse. So back back in 2001, yes, yeah, a happy one, Rachel. Back in 2001, in Sheffield, the area around Bower Street was one of the red light districts in the city, and that's where Michaela was known to work, both on that night and for the previous six months. It was just after 7pm when Michaela was last seen before she was attacked on Bower Street, and it was believed that is where she was picked up by a soon-to-be assailant. So, quite often, there are never any witnesses to crimes against sex workers. I I can't think of many that you hear about a witness. Can you, Rachel? No. Well, it just doesn't make for um, uh, entertaining reading, does it, in the newspapers? So. No, not that you don't hear of them. I mean, you don't hear of any people actually witnessing the crime when they get attacked. Oh, sure. Sorry. No, absolutely. Um, and then you've got... Um... You would implicate yourself, wouldn't you? Or why were you in the area at that time? And like, oh, yeah, well, you're a married like man, woman, or, you know, respectable like job, and you shouldn't be, you know. Exactly. But as we'll find out in a few minutes, we do actually have a key witness to this crime. But I am getting ahead of myself here. So, so Michaela was last seen around 7pm on Bower Street, and she was seen getting into an old-style Ford Sierra that was blue and had a roof rack on it. The witnesses also, rather specifically, said the driver was wearing an old-fashioned nightcap. <laughs> now, you, I'll add one, if I can still find it on my computer. I'll add one 
in the um, on our Instagram page and whatnot, so you know what I'm talking about. But I'll try and describe them for you, Rachel. Actually, I know that you love Christmas and you love your Christmas films. Do you know there's elves in the Christmas films? Do you know the mm-hmm. hats? That's a hat mm-hmm. what they normally use. I have the triangles on the sides with a little mm-hmm. bobble on the end. Right. Oh, in fact, no, it's not. Sorry, I'm totally wrong. It's the one where it's got the pointy in the top and it's got the bobble on the end. Andrew, are you trying to describe a flat cap to me? No, no, it's not a flat cap. It's like a triangle, but it's floppy. Oh, and yeah, it's got bobble a hat. Fluffy bobble on the end, but there's not a bobble hat. It's like a triangle. Yeah, right, okay, yeah. You've got no idea what I'm talking about, do you? Yeah. <laughs> okay, it doesn't matter. Uh, so I put... <laughs> I see. For the benefit of our listeners, <laughs> Andrew is putting a triangle shape above his head right now to try and explain, and then and then swooshing his arm down and saying, oh, and the bobble just hangs here. So, you know, <laughs> you guys can't see what's going on here. No, you can't, and I'm up. And uh, she's making me go quite red as well, but... I actually should have just carried on reading because I put a, a description in of what they look like rather than me try here. <laughs> this went better the first time around a year ago, people. So they, they cover their whole head and they're quite long and they taper out into a point and they have a bobble on the end. Does that help? That was a much better description, thank you. So I don't think I'm going to be invited back for episode 27. No, I don't think you will be. So... <laughs> Nothing is known of her whereabouts after that moment until she was found in a car park in the Spitalfields area of Sheffield. So this car park was a well-known area as a place where sex workers took their customers to perform whatever acts they had agreed to perform on them. So she was discovered, but she wasn't dead, Rachel. She was injured, still alive, by another sex worker around an hour later at 8pm in that very car park. So the police and ambulance service were quickly notified and they attended the scene. Now, it doesn't matter. I went on a little ramble here, so I'm going to go on a ramble to you instead, Rachel. It doesn't matter what a person's profession is. They deserve to be able to not have the fear of violence or death when they go about their jobs. Yeah, exactly. So, and I put here, it's irrespective if you personally agree or disagree with how they're earning their money, Mm -hmm. they should still be able to feel safe. I wholly agree. Yes. I don't think many people would disagree. Mm. Um, unfortunately, some would, which is why it happened. So unfortunately for Michaela, as it has been for many other sex workers, both past, present and in the future, they can never be assured in the knowledge they have a safe environment to work in. And we're going to investigate why this is a little bit later on. But we're looking at a very short time frame here. So she was last seen around 7pm, if you remember, but she was mm. found at 8pm. So there's only an hour in between. Now, we have to give credit here to go to a PC, Richard Twig, who was one of the first police officers on the scene. So earlier I mentioned that we had a key witness to the, this crime. Mm. So it wasn't the people who had seen her getting into the car with the man with the pointy hat on, although obviously they were still vital as all information is helpful. But the key witness was Michaela herself, Rachel, because she was found alive, not dead. You're shaking your head at me. No, I just didn't see that coming. Sorry. Okay. So it's one detail I've left out so far, but it's probably worth mentioning at this point is that Michaela suffered 19 stab wounds, Rachel. So this isn't like a maybe a, an attack to steal her money or something like that. That's 19 stab wounds. This is anger. This mm. is viciousness. Uh, so can you really comprehend that? Because they were all on her back and the neck. No, so, in fact... 
she got into that car willingly as well. It's like, you know, there's an element of trust from a, a sex worker and a client, isn't there? Um, yes. Putting yourself out there, you know. And obviously with the wounds being to the back of her body, it's indicating that what whoever it was, she was trying to, you know, get away from them. Exactly. So, so again, I'd like you to picture the scene here. You've been brutally attacked physically, and while it doesn't mention it, you quite possibly you'd be sexually attacked as well. You'd be stabbed 19 times, yet you're still in the back and neck, and yet you're still able to give a description of your attacker. Oh, my God. That takes some courage. So PC Twig, and again, credit where credit is due, knew that this was not only essential information, he also realised that she probably he probably thought that she may be never be able to give it a game because she may pass away. So his quick thinking led him to record everything that Michaela had said with a biro on his hand. Oh, man. So I'll include the picture. Sorry. Literally writing on the back of his hand. Yeah. Well, and in the, the moment. Front, yeah. I'll, I'll include a picture of his hand with our notes on social media, on our social media platform for you to check it out. So the description she was able to give was of a white male, around 38 years old, around six foot tall, clean shaven, and that he wore blue fleece, had glasses on, and also was wearing a wedding ring. So he was married. I guess that's something that you would clock quite quickly, wouldn't it? Like, if you were in that kind of business and, you know, potentially knew that you wouldn't necessarily be safe all of the time you would try and um, absorb as much information as possible in each interaction wouldn't you yeah and you like i don't know about you but i always think it if i'm walking down a street um and i hear some some sort of noise that's unfamiliar you know and i think what was the time where am i or if you see a car um you know, I don't know, driving erratically and you, you just think to yourself, he's going to cause an accident or she's going to cause an accident. You try and clock the number plate or the descriptors of the car, don't yeah. you? So I'm sure that being in, in that that business, you would be clocking elements of, yep, wedding ring, yep, height, Absolutely. weight, hair colour, as much information as you can just in case. Well, true, but you'd also got to think... I'd say that she probably noticed a wedding ring because if you're having to judge in a split second if someone's safe to get into a car with or not, I'm I'm guessing here, but probably if someone had a wedding ring, you'd probably assume them to be more safe than someone who doesn't. Because they don't because you think they don't this person doesn't want to cause a scene and he doesn't want his wife to find out. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, from from that aspect, definitely wouldn't want um, to be found out, would they, a married person? So, so yeah, that's a good shout there. So, what you think? Maybe she felt safer with a married man yeah, I mean, than she would have. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It, it's it's um, it's interesting that she didn't mention his pointy hat though. But um... like taking the hat off, though, Andrew, that could have been the you know the real critical descriptor. So he might have thought, right, need to get rid of the hat. PC Twig was quoted as saying, I could see she was in a bad way, but she was able to give me a very brief description of the man and his car. Picture the scene, Rachel. Michaela is picked up around 7pm in what the witnesses describe as an old South Sierra that was blue and had a roof rack on it 
by a man who was wearing a nightcap style hat. The man was white, around 38 years old, six foot tall, clean shaven, with a red ring, blue fleece and glasses. I was obviously just there trying to fill out to get enough words, I think. The assumption has to be Michaela took him to the car park that was well known to be a place sex workers took their clients to, and then she was attacked, stabbed 19 times. Again, just think about that. Not only was she stabbed 19 times, but like I said before, the post-mortem showed that it was on her back and neck. So it was most likely while she was laying, well, I put, you put, actually, I put, it was most likely while she was laying face down on the ground. But what you said, maybe she was trying to escape. So, yeah, it could have been that she was trying to escape as well. Yeah, I mean, it depends if, if her attacker has, like, immobilised her, right? Like, yeah taking her legs out from underneath her and she's on the floor or if he's like you know sat on on her but yeah I just I just I'd made an assumption that she was running away it makes more sense but you've got to think of the mindset of a person to do that though haven't you because I I still can't even after doing this for a year comprehend why someone would do such a thing because at, at one point even if she was running away or he'd got on the ground first at one point, she was on the ground, defenseless, already beaten and stabbed, and he just carried on stabbing her. And it's just, it's just crazy. So he would have probably gone out to do that on purpose. Yeah. But you've also got to think about Michaela here. So the strength that she must have had to hold on, not only to stay alive, because I, I, I truly believe you read it so many times. People know when they're dying, don't they? She had that strength to stay on. Yeah, I mean, if you've if you've been in that situation for that long to have suffered 19 stab wounds and, you know, I can only imagine that she's thinking about her son, her partner at home, that she's thinking, I just need to tell somebody who attacked me, get that person off the streets so no one else has to go through this and almost like sacrificing a, a, a kind of a, a more, if you can call it peaceful death by like succumbing to her injuries earlier. Yeah. Although she said she's fought and, and, you know, reported as much as she can to that PC twig. She she most definitely did fight because she was a fighter because she was taken to the Northern General Hospital, which is the nearest hospital, and it, because it's not that far from where she was found and she was actually operated on. They did try and save her life. Oh, so, wow. So twice she was resuscitated. So twice she died and twice they brought her back. But on the third time she couldn't be resuscitated. So she was pronounced dead at 11.05 p.m. So from being found at 8 p.m., she managed to live for another just over three hours. So that's pretty respectful respect is due, I think, there. So interestingly, though, when the inquest was held, the pathologist that examined Michaela's body, Dr. Peter Cooper, said in his findings that he didn't actually believe her wounds were necessarily fatal. And that quite often patients with the worst injuries than Michaela had survived. <laughs> so, so it's quite sad to think that Michaela went above and beyond to fight to stay alive, to give a description of her attacker, yet she still managed to die in hospital. So a question, question we have to ask now, was it the fault of the hospital here? So yeah, just, that's a really good point. Yeah, because if, if people normally live those sort of wounds so despite the testimony of dr peter cooper the coroner chris Dorns or chris doris who was leading the inquest came to the conclusion 
in the inquest that there were a number of incidents that had individual failings of the people who dealt with Michaela. So, but even though there were a number of incidents, so there was lots of individual failings, he couldn't actually find any evidence of systematic failings, if that makes sense. Mm. And do you think that was anything to do with her profession? No, I don't think so, because what it sounds like here was just lots of people making mistakes, rather than it being something which is, if it was maybe from who she was, and then she would have been treated badly because of who she was, if that makes sense. Mm. It's just a yeah. bad... Unfortunate, just unfortunate series of yes. events. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for, yes. So he therefore recorded a verdict of unlawful killing, rather than putting the blame on the hospital. But he did know that he hoped advances in technology would eventually lead to the identification of the killer. Yeah, and I was going to say, like, it definitely isn't the hospital's fault. I mean, they've tried to take care of her in her last hours on Earth, but ultimately she's in hospital because of this vile human being who's stabbed her 19 times. Like, she hasn't entered hospital a perfectly healthy woman and been poisoned by a nurse or a doctor, has she? Exactly. So what I found interesting, when he said this, that it's not recorded anywhere, this is just my opinion, but he thought that they had found something that one one day may help, but they just didn't have the capability back then to process it. If he's saying that he thinks that advancing technology would lead to identification of a killer, that to me indicates that maybe they found something on her or in her that could identify the killer, but they just didn't have the capability back then to be able to process it and Get that identification. Yeah, sounds about right. So uh, now I've put here, though, that it puzzled me a little bit because if the coroner found several individual failings, it shows I can't remember the script because I could have answered your question with this. Uh, it shows that if the coroner found several individual failings, how could he not say the hospital was at fault? Well, it seems in order to find systematic failings, there had to be a pattern of conduct or repeated code breaches. And in this case, there wasn't. It was just an, like you said, actually, an unfortunate chain of several mistakes, all by individual people working separately or happen to be treating the same patient. So individually, it probably wouldn't have been fatal to her, but combined, it was. And that's probably the worst part, isn't it? Yes. There was a Chris Welsh, who at the time was a medical director for Sheffield Teaching Hospital's NHS Trust, and he said that his team had conducted a thorough review of Michaela's case and it led them to strengthen their procedures and protocols. So the failure, so the failures that, that did occur did not, and he said this, amount individually or collectively to a gross failure to provide basic medical attention. I guess if you're in charge of it, you're not going to find that it did because it makes you look bad, doesn't it? But at least from a legacy perspective, like she's led this changes being made in their protocols right yes definitely so back to the investigation now so the police actually acted really quickly in this one they put roadblocks in place that night to interview drivers and they painstakingly searched the dvla that said drivers uh, what does that stand for rachel drivers vehicle licensing agency act oh agency yes Uh, anyway and it ended up eliminating 3,662 owners or drivers of four Sierras. And they also pursued more than 10,500 separate lines of inquiry. Jesus. Yep. And they interviewed over 7,400 people. Over so, what period of time? 
Um, I don't remember. Maybe I put it in here. I don't remember. Sorry. That's that is some investigation, isn't it? Yeah. And like, how amazing that they have thrown what would seem to be to me a lot of resource at yes. finding the killer, right? Yeah, definitely. Now it's just it's just really unfortunate that it was such a popular make and model of car at the time. I I mean, virtually like everyone had a Ford Sierra at the time, and they were also able to identify all, not some, but all of her regular customers. Wow. And they were able to speak to other sex workers who worked in the area, as well as other men who regularly visited the area, but didn't visit her. But it all came to nothing. So yeah, they, they really put the time and effort into this. So it wasn't the case of, oh, it's just an old dead sex worker. They mm. they put the time and effort into this. They, yeah, like I say, they managed to speak to all the regular customers. And they did it because they put out the very public threat in the media that if her regular customers didn't voluntarily go to the police to give them a statement, they would track them down and visit them at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they yeah. also, yeah, so that would work, I guess. And they also liaised with other, with police forces from across the country looking for possible links with other sex worker murders. So they managed to get Michaela's murder featured on Crime Watch, which we've... Bring back Crime Watch. Yes, everyone loves Makes Crime me Watch. so sad. Yes, uh, Mark from Seamrad, he mentioned the uh, the channel that has them all on. I've watched a few of them. It's good to watch them still. but Absolutely. And he, in fact, um, I didn't even think to look on YouTube, but yeah, he got me hooked on uh, the back catalogue of Crime Watch. Bloody love that show. Yeah, it was good. So yeah, they managed to get it not only featured on Crime Watch, but they got a £5,000 reward as well, because... For those people out there who knew what I'm talking about, if they're not from the UK, Crime Watch was at the time was a hugely popular nationwide television show in the UK that featured unsolved crimes. I guess a bit like the unsolved mysteries they have in America, mm-hmm. uh, with with a view that a viewer or viewers could help. And then they've but, got like Dateline in the US as well, don't they? Where they do like specials on like crimes and they do roundups as well. Like I don't know whether you recall. Um, I mean, I'm a big crime watch fan, but they did like roundups of how criminals got caught, which yeah. is interesting as well. Yes, it was. Yeah. But even though the police did all of this, went on crime watch, offered a reward, it failed to produce any tangible leads. So if we skip forward a couple of years to 2003, they launched another appeal to try and get people to remember any detail that might help them. In 2005, so a couple of years more. It, it was reported that they had arrested a man from Worksop, which is near Sheffield. It's a town close to Sheffield. And, but it was reported that he was soon released not long after his arrest with no charges. And a year later, in 2006, Chief Superintendent Paul Broadbent, who was leading the inquiry into her death, was quoted as saying this in a fresh appeal for new information. Five years down the line, there is still a relentless desire will and need to arrest the person who brutally attacked and killed Michaela. We we have items of clothing that Michaela gave us at the time. We have other forensic opportunities and we have got CCTV footage that I am fully confident that in the fullness of time will assist us in identifying who killed Michaela. So it sounds like they, they've got a clothing which maybe had DNA on, other forensic opportunities which you don't say what it is, and CCTV, so it sounds like they've got a fair amount of stuff. Yeah, and they make a model of a car and a description. Yeah. 
of the yeah. individual. Paul Broadrent said that he wanted to be the one to charge the killer when her killer was found. So to me, it sounded like he took that quite personally. That yeah. He said that I want to be the one to arrest this man. And I think you find that, don't you, when you see these cases that are publicised in the news and the um, the detective chief inspector who's been assigned to the case, it's like, for them, for that person, usually it's the biggest case they will ever be a part of, especially when it's hit like national headlines. So it becomes quite personal, doesn't it? It does, yeah. So he also went on to say in 2006 in an interview that Michaela's family, they actually wanted to do a personal appeal. But he was quoted as saying they were still, I'm going to quote this, that they were too devastated that now it's still too oh. raw for them. So this is three years later. Um, hang on, three years or five? Is this not in Five years, sorry. Five years, yes, sorry, my bad. Gosh, that's just count. awful, isn't it? That like that grief and destruction could go yes. on for so long, like. Heartbreaking. Yeah. So skip forward another three years to 2009, a Peter McDonough, who is a convicted rapist, was briefly named as a subject of interest, as a person of interest, but he was never charged. So a couple of years later, and it, uh, there's very little information on that one. Uh, so a couple of years later, in 2011, there was a fresh appeal for information to mark the 10-year anniversary of her death. And Mikada's partner actually spoke out for the very first time, saying that her death had destroyed not only him, but their son and her family. He also pleaded for anyone with information to come forward. And this is what her partner said. Give him up. He's a killer. He's had 10 years of freedom he should never have had. So that is that's very emotive. Um, Just kind of wanted to say at this stage, like, this, this killer hasn't, had any sort of pattern forming because I mean you've not kind of alluded to any of the deaths in the area or across the country that follow a similar pattern so yes the the husband the partner speaking out is personal but I feel like and I get it it was a frenzied attack on her but I feel like the murderers um intentions were personal as well because it was clearly just her one single victim it could be but if she could describe him, him, if she knew him, wouldn't she have said, rather than describing what he was wearing, oh, it's John so-and-so or Bob so-and-so? Yeah, I mean, good good point, but I just mean more personal on the killer's side. Maybe yeah. not personal to her, but, ah, okay, yeah. you know, you know, like, um, I don't know, she might like have fit the description. Of, yeah, she might have fit the description of his mum when yeah. she was young and his mum abandoned him or, you know, all these kind of things that might have played out. Um, it just seems to me. Exactly. So her partner went on to explain how his son had never had the chance to be brought by his mother because of this. And he finished his plea by saying this. One minute she was setting off fireworks, the next minute she was gone forever. So by 2011, I guess Paul Broadbent he lost his chance to charge a killer because now the inquiry was led by a detective superintendent, Lisa Ray, who had this to say. And she said, we do have some DNA profiles. We're now working hard to try and identify whose DNA this is. So this, we are looking for these people. It may be the offender or it may be witnesses. So this means that this person, whoever did it, had never been caught for anything because you automatically get your DNA taken when you get arrested. Even if you don't get yeah. charged with anything, when you're arrested, now they take your DNA. Yeah. 
So it seems like he'd never been caught for anything. So it seems that the coroner was right. Time did lead to advancements to identify DNA, and it was potentially from the killer. Now, the car park where Michaela was found in, it was put for notice of demolition years later. Uh, and the police actually, this goes to the dedication of the police again, the police took the time to go back just before it was put for demolition, and they re-examined every single inch of it, just in case they could find any new evidence. So this is years later, yeah. Twelve years later, that's insane. So it sounds like a long shot, but it shows how serious they were about finding the killer here. In 2019, which was the 18th anniversary of her death, it was revealed that Michaela's murder was one of 36 unsolved cases on the books of the South Yorkshire Police's Major Incident Review Team, which is a team that concentrates on unsolved murders and rapes. So it was still being looked at 18 years later, and they were quoted. The team was quoted as saying this, The death of Michaela Haig remains under continuing review by our major incident review team, as do all other undetected homicide investigations. We take any new invest- information, intelligence, or lines of inquiry seriously and allocate resources to look into them accordingly. As always, anyone with any information is encouraged to contact us. Unfortunately, to me at least, unfortunately, I actually thought they sounded less promising than the two previous quotes mm-hmm. that happened in 2011 and 2006. It's disappointing, but I guess it's a little bit predictable, don't you think, Rachel? Because as the longer crime goes unsolved, the harder it is to solve it. Yeah, even like, so there's been a lot of advancements, obviously, um, with like DNA testing and things like that, that should have, in theory, unlocked the key to identifying the killer, but uh, not even they have, have, have helped. So I'm guessing you would feel pretty disheartened as a investigation team at that stage as well. Yeah, definitely. So in 2020, so 19 years after uh, Michaela was killed, they actually launched another appeal for new information. But sadly, this time it it hard it received hardly any publicity. The press no longer cared, and so it didn't get in the, It didn't really get in any papers, or it didn't get any publicity at all. Which is quite sad, really, isn't it? Yeah, and it's almost like saying that you know the crime's not sexy enough to kind of publicize and advertise in our papers you know there's you know more than we could be putting out there and it's just not fair like every victim deserves you know justice exactly now i wrote this last year so rumors i put rumors around earlier this year so rumors were about last year that gary allen who was convicted last year for the murders of elena grelikova who was 38 from rotherham which is the town next to sheffield uh, in 2018, and also Samantha Class, who was 29 and killed in Hull in 1997. So he got convicted for those two crimes last year mm-hmm. from 1997 and 2018. And they thought that um, maybe it was him that killed Michaela. So Gary Allen was 47 this year. So 47 mm-hmm. last year, be 48 now. So it, it made him 27 at the time of Michaela's death. And he actually, believe it or not, he actually openly told probation workers in prison that sex workers were scum mm. and the lowest of the low. I mean, it just shows you the mentality of this man. He he also admitted to having regular violent fantasies involving sex workers, stating, I like to frighten them. I like to cause pain. I like to make them cry. I like oh blood. I like to hurt them. I enjoy it. It makes me feel good. So that's awful. The mind of a man that 
thinks That's that and quite openly says that. Awful. Yeah, I feel for his victims because I can't imagine what they went through. I don't know those crimes at all, but I can't imagine what they went through. And, you know, I, I don't know much about those crimes either, but I'm making an assumption here that they were sex workers that he yes. you know, killed there as well. I believe so. But in 2018, when he was arrested and convicted, would they not have been able to link DNA? Well, you'd think so, yeah, which is why I don't think it was him. I feel like you're going to leave this crime unsolved. We'll get there. One second. Actually, my, my next my next paragraph answers your question. For the, is it him? So while detectives said they believe Gary Allen killed other sex workers, so they, they openly said that we think he killed other sex workers, and they are investigating that. They actually ruled him out of Michaela's death because at the time she was killed, he was serving a five-and-a-half-year prison sentence for attacking was. two sex workers in Plymouth. So, Hopefully. yeah. And that's what I mean about, like, Michaela's killer. Like, why why hasn't he been caught and profiled well, for another crime? I'm, do you know what I'm thinking? This has just come to me. I'm not getting this in my notes, but what if the DNA they found was just a person who had paid for Michaela's services, like, just before? And that's why there's no tr- trace of it because he's just a person going about his business who uses sex workers, and this maybe this killer never actually sexually assaulted her, and yeah, well, leaving a DNA. You get some murderers, don't you, who attack sex workers because they themselves can't physically perform yeah. sexual acts, can they? So they they just take it out on the victim, and and you know in that in that respect, so um. By by all accounts, it wouldn't be the first time a sex worker has been killed by somebody that hasn't been able to perform the act. So you you asked me, am I going to leave this one unsolved? So the answer is yes, I am. At my very first episode was probably the only one I've done that's been an unsolved murder. Is it? I can't, I, I can't, I can't believe that. I'm I'm going to swear. I can't fucking believe that. Every time you told us that they'd reopen the case and. He appealed for fresh information and everything. I just thought, right, it's coming. I can't, I can't believe it. Yeah, I don't often. I'm not. I, it's weird because one of my favorite podcasts is. Um, oh, my mind's gone black. Is it the unsolved? <laughs> oh, my mind's gone black. I think it's the unsolved. I actually support her on the host on Patreon. My mind's gone black. I think it's the unsolved, um, and that's mainly about missing people and unsolved crimes. But I don't. I'm not a fan of doing them myself, but I do like listening to them. So, yeah, no, this is, and listeners, I said this to Rachel at the beginning. I When I actually wrote this script, I just ended it there. I I, I must have just made up the end, like, know the, the picture of the scene. So that's all my script. So I'm just going to put a little end here. So this may, be, this may be poor because I'm doing it off the top of my head. So, so for one last time, I'd like you to relax, close your eyes, and picture the scene. You're spending time with your loved one. It's bonfire night. You can hear the fireworks. You can smell those hot dogs. And you can hear the laughter of children. Will it be the last time you hear that laughter? So how do you think of that then, Rachel? How do you think of the case? And what do you think of... um, What do you think of... Yeah, it's what you think. I don't know what to ask you here. I've got no script, people. I don't work well without a script. Um, Well, first of all, like excellent case because you know it's the second time i've heard it and i'm still surprised 
but I would say like definitely not a fan of us hosting Unsolved because I feel like I'm going to be like dwelling on that a lot over the next couple of days however great to get her name out there and and you know advise like kind of advise the listeners of of another case that's gone unsolved and and the fact that you know some man is out there patrolling the streets free just makes us really angry but also kind of um affirms why we're here and doing this you know raising awareness and talking about cases that um, perhaps aren't publicly appeasing anymore to, to appear in newspapers what I would say as well is, like, I'm not sure if the listeners are aware, but it we're re-recording episode one on the first anniversary that Andrew published this script. So it's exactly one year to the day, 5th of September, that the first ever episode of Picture the Scene went out. Um, so happy birthday, Picture the Scene. And yeah, um, yeah thanks for, for allowing us to record today, Andrew, and um, for sharing that script again with us. I know, and I'm just going to give a little bit of an insight into how it went that very first night. I had wrote the script, but then I recorded in my spare bedroom in the apartment we were renting before, before we got the house. And so I recorded it by myself. I sent my wife, Nikki, I think she'd gone out to see one of her friends or something so I could be alone to do it. And I then edited it very badly. It took me hours to edit. And then I had to create the the content for the social medias and I think I was up to like three o'clock in the morning or something just um, oh my god because I just I had this in my mind that I had to do it the very first um I had to do everything in one go and it was just I was just so happy when it went out and I mean I've got, I, got a yeah, couple of listens or something I don't envy you I think that like it goes like unmentioned um how much time and effort you put into this podcast and I most times turn up and listen and kind of chat a bit of crap between the kind of comments and I, I do try and let Andrew speak and not interrupt him it's very difficult though because I apparently can't um, wait to talk um, but yeah Andrew is the brains behind the podcast he does all of the um, post you know recording editing he uploads it he keeps an eye on numbers he lets me know who's interacting with us like yeah, so very, um, you know, lots of hard work and effort going from your side, and um, we rarely talk about it. So, yeah, just a big shout out to you, Andrew. Well, I don't think the listeners want to hear us blow smoke each of each of us backsides, but I think it's a, I think it's a team effort here, Rachel. Anyway, this is a bonus episode, people. So we don't normally do one every week, but you're going to get this tomorrow, uh, or maybe tonight if I'm feeling bored tonight. But tomorrow, and uh, you'll get another one next week and i haven't actually wrote that one yet i know what it's on though we're going to scotland next week uh yes and it's a very very brutal murder actually plural murders so thank you everyone and we'll see you next week thanks guys Mm -hmm.